Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. As the explosion of drug culture around Ireland started to to emerge in the 2000s, you had these guys who had rural patches. All of a sudden, these guys were selling coke and ecstasy and all that stuff and making big money. They also brought a a degree of of violence. Patrick Irwin was one of the first to really come to, to prominence. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Cocaine cowboy Patrick Irwin is being hunted after he assaulted a lawyer in a Midlands town and stole his Porsche car from outside a bar. The convicted criminal has already served time for assaulting a Garda, who he viciously punched during a search of his car while on bail for serious drug offences. Once a powerful gang boss who controlled Ireland's northwest drug turf from his hometown of Sligo, Irwin is now on borrowed time, running scared from Gardaí and his enemies. Today I'm talking with Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about Irwin and his rise and fall. And we consider the treatment of those who lash out at people working in the criminal justice system and whether their sentencing reflects their crimes. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Oh, we're back. <laughs> After holidays. Hmm. How'd you get on? It was great. It was great to get away. And, uh, you know, yeah, I got the... You're, you're experiencing the back-to-school feeling. I haven't felt that like since... I'm kind of uh, depressed. Well, talking to me now surely will raise your spirits, <laughs> but... No, but uh, yeah, I haven't felt that since it was, it's like remembering the leaving cert all them years ago. Yeah. Where you all of a sudden reality strikes. Yeah. I saw um, a big group of people doing yoga down at, along the seafront there the other night. That's real kind of, you know, back yeah. September. Lose a bit of weight. Yeah. Get rid of the summer. Back to reality. Lab and back to reality. So back here to, we are. Back to, to, to crime and misery to some Back extent. to crime. Yeah. And it has, despite everybody taking summer holidays, of course, some of our friends have been busily keeping the sundayworld.com busy. Yes. And many of our journalists have been working while we have been holidaying. Yes. But um, Patrick Irwin, I mean, a blast from the past in many ways, but he has been around. I've been writing about him since way back. I mean, 2008, 2009. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Patrick Irwin was one of these first uh, big rural crime lords, really. I mean, obviously, you know, the history of of of, of organised crime has really been focused in Dublin and to, you know, obviously to Limerick as well, to some extent. But, you know, as the explosion of drug culture around Ireland started to, to emerge in the 2000s, you had these kind of guys who had rural patches and... You know, where before certain parts of Ireland you might have got an odd bit of hash for sale, all of a sudden these guys are selling coke and ecstasy and all that stuff and making big money. And Patrick Irwin was one of the first to really come to, to prominence. Um, he was a major 
supplier of, of drugs in, in Sligo and the surrounding counties. Um, he probably shot to attention more than anything because he, he'd forged uh, uh, ties with what was Eamon Dunn's, uh, the Don, as he was known, uh, the, the, the Finglas-based criminal. He Patrick Aaron had forged ties with that mm. that kind of gang. Um, also, some some other people that that had been associated with sort of crime in West Dublin, and he he really uh, seemed to have found a little patch for himself and became uh, probably one of the the larger sort of regional suppliers in in the country. That's kind of like curious to that time, if you look at it, where the rural groups, while they might be big in their own small hometown, once they start making the connections with those Dublin gangs, getting the supplies, sort of almost, you know, becoming franchises nearly of them. And you see the explosion then of drugs, sort of, I suppose, between 2000 and, you know, three into... 2011 when he was jailed you know for um, cocaine smuggling but I mean the area of Sligo and that northwest region became a very significant drug turf I mean the Irwins um, you know at one point they controlled Sligo, Leitrim, Mayo, Roscommon and Donegal um, but started out in a row with a, another gang in, in the area um, a traveller gang from memory and was also once, the gang was also once headed up by Patrick Irwin's brother, Huey. But he was, he survived an assassination bid and he kind of moved out to Lanzarote um, and based himself there. And at that point, Patrick, the younger brother, kind of took over. Um, so what's happened? Bring us up to date with, he's only recently out of prison and we have been keeping a watching brief on him, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose... The Irwins became the, the the number one gang in that area, but Patrick Irwin subsequently went to prison, um, and that there another a rival gang uh, seems to have become one of the really taken over, um, and that gang is led by a man who we can't name, but they again forged very strong ties and 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 connections with with. Uh, a Dublin criminal in particular, a Dublin criminal known as Mr. Big, um, and they seem to have taken over from the Irwins. Um, so Patrick Irwin spent a long time in Castle Ray, where you know he, his some of his associates were believed to control the drugs trade. But once he came out of prison, um, maybe uh, the, the the his position had been undermined. Um, and in 2019, he was given a, a, a Jim former guard information message warning his, his life was under threat and he survived uh, a botched assassination attempt. Since then, he seems to have not been based in Sligo for the most part. Um, he's moving between the north, Dublin, County Mead as well, we hear. Um, maybe, uh, you know, the, 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 the rival gang have, have really shot the prominence and his mm. his... Position as unassailable in 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 Sligo and that part of the country has has dropped down. So we hadn't really heard much of him over the last uh, since COVID and um, since the assassination attempt. He definitely hadn't been in Sligo in the mm. in the way he was, where he'd really been concentrating in an area and people were really, you know, aware of you know these were the big shots and stuff. But uh, he popped up um, earlier this month 
not a bizarre incident maybe but a really uh, he seems to have a, a colourful incident mm. put it that way obviously there's a victim of of this as well but he's been in uh, he seems to have developed a grudge against a particular legal professional let's put it uh, that way the grudge seems to have been over a period of time he seems to have been uh, demanding money that he believed he he, he was is in is old now? Yeah. There's no suggestion this this legal professional has could owe a criminal money. No, or or you know has behaved in any way uh, inappropriately. But this is these these are this is the way these guys are. Mm. And I mean, you see it constantly. Uh, people deciding somebody owes them a debt and then proceeding yeah. to collect it on the basis of almost nothing. So he seems to have become aware this solicitor was in 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 a in a hotel in in. Offaly in a pub in Offaly and uh, followed him into the pub, assaulted him and demanded money when obviously nobody's going around carrying big wedges of cash and instead took the solicitor's Porsche and left the scene in the Porsche. Um, so that, that I think was... Uh, That's pretty crazy. It sounds like something off the... The TV and yeah. where's the Porsche? Well, the Porsche is uh, as of as as far as we know is it not it hasn't been recovered. Um, you know there was a sort of a obviously Patrick Irwin has not been in his base in Sligo, so he seems to be moving around in between houses. So possibly that was, gone up north. Possibly gone up north, but I mean this is um, you know Patrick Irwin of course was 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 always a violent criminal and one of the things he was convicted of was he was involved in a vicious attack on a guard at a traffic stop, something very, uh, you know, just a, a random violent attack. And I mean, that was part, part of the, the, the Irwin gang were um, ruled through a lot of, a lot of fear. Um, they were one of, as I said, they were one of the first rural gangs, but they also brought a, a degree of, of violence, I suppose, mm. you know, I mean, traditionally there was, drug dealers in rural Ireland, but they tended to be selling hash to people who wanted to buy it. And there wasn't that kind of, that, 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 uh, the gun crime and violence associated with that sort of rural dealing. And they really stepped it up in that way. Um, Do you know what I always noticed about the Irwins? And I mean, it's been a long time now, maybe since I have been properly looking at them, but um, there was there was a kind of chaos to them, this sort of chaotic existence. Um, they always remained where they started from. They never, despite the fact that we were once calling them a drug cartel and they were Sligo's biggest gang and they had, you know, they had hopes and ambitions, I suppose, for, for great wealth. They never seemed to totally accumulate or keep it. So they were always uh, the brother Tommy, who was particularly chaotic, and I think he he passed away in sadly, in recent years. But he was really, I mean, there was one point he was up on the roof of the house, the family home, which was a, a council home. Um, the house was, at the back of it, there was this kind of like bar built where they used to, you know, certainly Tommy, I think, had become quite paranoid, along with Huey, the older brother. When he returned from Lanzarote, he returned and kind of bedded into that house and never left it. He was constantly afraid he was going to get shot up or he was going to be attacked. Um but there was a kind of a sense about them that uh, you'd hear these stories and, you know, a lot of them you couldn't nearly write about. I mean, there was certainly an incident recently we did write about where one of them at a family wedding swung from a chandelier in a hotel. But um, Patrick himself 
was um he was kind of known as the sort of king's scum of the Northwest when he went to jail. He was only 29 when he did, but he was a womanizer. And he at one point had uh, built this house in Drumahair, where, um, which was eventually taken by the Criminal Assets Bureau and sold. It was an absolutely beautiful house. He had spent 450000 on it. He hadn't in a million years hid the fact that he owned it. Um, I think he had put a girlfriend at the time into living in it. Uh, the Criminal Assets Bureau, it was kind of an easy pickings nearly for, for them because the the Irwins sort of felt they could get away with, you know, they weren't organised or something. No, they I weren't think... kind of clever enough maybe to hide their money, to hide their wealth. That house, um, while it cost 450000 to build, I think by the time it was sold, it was sold for about ninety or 100000 Um because it wasn't worth what had been put into it, where where it was, it was, it was, and I rem- remember going down at one point, and the criminal assets bureau had got the, you know, the the order, the court order that the, it was theirs, and they were going to sell it, and they had given Erwin uh, a certain amount of time to move out. I think actually he was in jail, and some associates of his had gone in to take his belongings, his goods and chattels, and they had obviously taken more than that. <laughs> they had removed the kitchen units, they had taken the the plumbing with them, they had literally stripped the pa- place bare. The kitchens wouldn't have been worth anything. They were fitted. They would have only, you know, worked in this particular shape of a kitchen. But still, he wanted to. It's that kind of sort of. Um, you know, anarchy almost against uh, policing and and probably the, the the system. Yeah, I mean, it was probably unsophisticated criminality, really, and it was probably something equivalent to what the uh, you know, in terms of that l- lack of sophistication that you saw with the Dundon McCarthy gang at times mm. in 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 Limerick at a, at a similar point. They were these guys were really were kings of their own castle. And they really re- rule through a kind of fear and intimidation. And uh, it wasn't as sophisticated. They weren't necessarily trying to keep a low profile all the time. Um, they obviously had an explosion of money, though, at some point. Um, even if you're talking about those assets, you know, these people were living, you know, very, very extravagant lifestyles just in terms of normal day-to-day spending. So he still accumulated quite a lot of mm. a lot of wealth, but there wasn't the sophistication um, that you that you that you see from other yeah. other criminals. They didn't have that money laundering no. pro- proper operation set up. There was a couple of kind of uh people that got caught up though in the Irwin's world that should naturally have been involved in criminality. I mean there was one particular girl Deirdre Moran, um, the daughter from recall of a doctor who had had a relationship with with Erwin. Yeah, I mean, partly that's, I mean, he obviously had been written about in the Sunday world for a good few years at that point, but in some ways, um, uh, Deirdre Moran pushed him into the pushed him into the other newspapers, really, yeah. um, because he obviously was in a, a long-term relationship with another woman and he had an, uh, another uh, uh her friend, as she described herself, uh, Deirdre Morn, who... So she was the second girlfriend, like? Yes. So she was, um, you And know, knew about the other one? Well, I mean, who knows what yeah. people knew, but there there seems to have been a kind of a, a, an overlap, let's put it that way. Now, Deirdre Morn was a very, very, you know... Privileged. Privileged girl, mm. very respectable family, highly respectable, um, very attractive looking, um, 
but she seems to have been sucked in by, I suppose, like, you know, she's not the first or the last to be sucked in by, by, um, the kind of the, the glamorous mm. side of these things. He wasn't a bad looking fella. Was it Patrick Irwin? Is it what he's like now? Look for him on Facebook and see. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so she went to, was sent to Dublin um, to collect a, a, a handgun. Um, she subsequently, I, as far as I recall, said she didn't know what she was collecting, but she knew she was collecting something that was likely to be, mm-hmm. you know, used for, for, you know, something to do with his, his, his illegal business. However, it was a handgun that she she collected um, from a, a, a you know one of those gangland contacts in 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 the in in Dublin, basically from from that Blanchardstown area. Um, she was caught. Um, she received a, a, a lengthy prison sentence, um, and it, it it became a kind of um, mm. maybe she became a symbol of how. Or you know, an example of how people can get sucked into this with devastating consequences, yeah. obviously for her own, for her own life. And um, now, in the aftermath of it all, uh, after she she was released, um, she did speak very strong, like you know, quite yeah. powerfully, I suppose, about about the mistake she'd made and how she had moved on. And by all accounts, she really did move on and and put that life behind her and became involved in a. Uh, fashion business as far as I know. Yeah, she thinks she was doing that behind bars. She learned how to make dresses and stuff and when she came out she like she used her time. She used her time and, and put it put it put it past her. But it, it did became something that people maybe looked at and, and, and sort of saw it as, you know, these are the, 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 the people in the wake of these criminals. Yeah. Their lives tend to be ruined as well. I just noticed there a piece I had written around the time that he was jailed, which would have been in 2011. And he got seven years after being caught with 70,000 of cocaine at the time. And it was only weeks after. And I have one of three devoted girlfriends. So there wasn't just two of them. Yeah. You stand corrected there. Okay, well, it's it's sometimes hard to keep up. There was three women. Yeah. And she was jailed for, for gun running for him. Now, she was only 26 at the time. And she got the five year sentence. And that was for attempting to transport a gun between murdered gangster Eamon the Don Don and her boyfriend's gang. Um, yes, you're right. She did say in court that she didn't know what it was she had, but it was in the footwell of the car when she was stopped. And I think her and others in the around the Irwin crew were under surveillance at the time. Um, she wasn't to know. Now, Irwin's sentence at that point was a huge coup for the Gardaí in the in the Northwest because he had kind of, and all of the Irwins had sort of given them the two fingers for years. He'd been public enemy number one at that stage for a decade and had been, you know, selling heroin and cocaine around the region. So he'd earlier been caught in, in 2006 with 67,000 worth of cocaine in Roscommon after a surveillance operation had been set up on him. And he was about to do the drugs transaction in an area called Dune when the officer swooped in and caught him in the passenger seat of a Mercedes car with 55,000 in cash and 962 grams of cocaine. Um is there a suggestion, I mean, we're going back to 2006 then and we know that previous to that they were in the business from really the turn of the century. Is there a suggestion that he's still, you know, forging some sort of a career for himself in in, in the drugs business? Well, he's obviously uh, not averse to behave, misbehaving if he's taking people's Porsches. But, you know, what really what happened was in as he went to prison, 
there was the rise of this other regional gang, as I spoke about, but they became maybe far more significant than the Irwins ever could be. Um, although they had a Sligo base, they really became a much more professional outfit. Mm. Um, you know, and that gang from Sligo were also being linked to the murder of, for example, Robbie Lawler. Mm. Um, so the role that they played, it seems to be, a, that's obviously one of, it's still, there's people on trial in the north, a very complicated murder, but that Sligo gang have, um, you know, have become one of the major regional suppliers maybe throughout the country and in parts of Leinster, parts of parts of Connachtan. They maybe became a more sophisticated operation than the Irwins who are really strutting their stuff around Sligo mm. and, 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 you know, you know, some of the Irwin gang would have been involved in beating up drug addicts for small amounts of money. So you see, probably they were replaced by something that the Irwins lacked, which is a kind of a more, um, you know, a, something with a, a longer term strategy. Mm. Um, and that's the increasing complexity of, of gangland really in Ireland, isn't it? That when they, you know, when some of these guys get get replaced and you saw it in Limerick when when the, the Dundon brothers ended up behind prison you had the rise of um, the, some of the McCarthy faction that were yeah. really were um, a lot more uh, you know money orientated a lot more desirant of a low lower profile and certainly a more professional uh, gangland outfit What colour is the Porsche? Do we know? I don't know, Nicola. Any so colour any colours any colour is okay when you have a Porsche, yeah, I, I suppose. Think so. I you know? think so. I have to say. I do think though, if you're gonna bother, you know, going to the bother of, you know, buying one, a red one really would have to be the Look, you can yeah, as soon as Anyway, I'll, I'll, a solicitor who can afford a Porsche, good luck to him. Um, look, and hopefully that uh, case will. Is the, are the guards investigating? Has there been a complaint made in the case? Do we know? Or? Um, it's certainly being investigated yeah. by the guards. I don't. Yeah. I'm not aware of. Uh, you know, but well, it's, who's given a statement or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I mean, it is. Yeah. It's now. Look, it's a bit unusual for a member of the legal profession to be targeted by criminals, but not totally unusual. And I think. You know, when that happens and along with guards as well, the cases, people working within sort of the world of criminality, be you a guarder, a lawyer, a judge, whatever, maybe a journalist, ambulance services, etc. There's this kind of like, you like to see if somebody lashes out and attacks or in any way, you like to see them sentenced and, and a kind of an example to be made because you have to work with this and, and you don't want to be seen as an easy target. Now, unfortunately, there was a case recently which has angered the guards and I think the, the GRA have come out and condemned it. Um, a criminal by the name of Gavin Quinn in who savagely attacked a guard, Alan Murphy, who was, I noticed, had, was given a medal for his um, his bravery, uh, a special commemorative me medal recently, and is still a guard because a lot of people who are subjected to these kind of attacks just will never work again, really. So he has to be admired for that. But Gavin Quinn and his brother, Lee Quinn, were... Uh, just tell us about it, and, and also just to point out that how long Gavin Quinn spent in jail, which is just... Yeah, so, I mean, I think the attacks on professionals, see, we've seen this in other countries, you know, people might think, and 
they have a, a justifiable thing to say that a, an attack on anybody should should never be treated differently. You know, anybody who's a, a victim, it's, it should all be the same. But you have seen in other countries, and we're, for example, and that you the part that's featured on Crime World a lot in 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 say in Holland, mm. where attacks on 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 police, judiciary, solicitors have just become commonplace. Mm. So the state. You know, whatever way you look at it, the state can't tolerate that, or nor should it tolerate attacks on 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 the basic foundation, because it's really an attack on, on an attempt to undermine the ability of the justice system to function. Mm. So, I mean, I think that's why there's, you know, there was justifiable anger at at what happened with Gavin Quinn, because, um, you know, he walked free basically forty five days after after, you know, his final sentence. Now he served. Some of that 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 sentence was backdated to when he went into custody, mm. but you know the the original attack was deemed uh, so serious that he was initially charged and his brother were charged with attempted murder. Now that wasn't followed through. That was eventually downgraded by the DPP um, to an assault charge. So the you know, but it was initially. So what happened was Garda Alan Murphy went to the scene of what he thought was an attack on somebody else. Yeah in uniform or out of it, whatever it was, he was there as a member of the Garda Siakona to protect another member of the public. Which is actually initially to, to attack, to, you know, the, the Quins were in dispute with somebody else and he initially came with the with the, the idea of defending the Quins. Right, yeah. the, two, the two brothers, Gavin and, and Lee Quinn. So he's there and he arrives in the course of his job and he is attacked and so savagely, I have to say, I think the... The details of this are just horrendous. He was, he says, pinned to the ground by Gavin Quinn while Lee Quinn jumped on him and stabbed him. First tried to stab him through this, the, 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 the torso, the abdomen, but he had a stab vest on him. He could feel the knife in that. So then when he couldn't get him there, he decided to go at his face and he tried to stab him through the eye. Yeah. Like it's horrific, um, you know. And um, he did stab him because... In his victim impact statement, he he describes how, you know, he he thinks of this, what happened to him every day, he thought he was going to die. It was only members of the uh, of the fire brigade, the Dublin fire brigade came to his aid. They had obviously were also at the scene and um, they saved him, he says. And he he actually said in his victim impact statement, I can still feel the twist of the blade as it was as it was torn from my head. Yeah, so I mean, you know, these are, you know, lifelong trauma that caused that these mm. things cause. I mean, there's just no getting a, getting around it. And when you see, um, you know, that that Gardaí are obviously putting themselves on the line, as many other people do in terms of, you know, uh, ambulance workers and all of that. But there can't be too much tolerance for it. Um, neither Lee Quinn nor Gavin Quinn could be by any definition described as uh, this couldn't be described as as you know the perfect criminal records both yeah. of them have significant criminal records and Gavin Quinn you know would have had he it wouldn't have been the first time he'd been in the papers he would have been well known he would have associated with what would broadly been he would have been described as one of the young fat freddy gang mm. members and um, you know these people have been before the courts repeatedly for for violent attacks so to to get a two and a half year sentence for something like that does seem 
genuinely quite shocking. Um, Lee Quinn obviously got a longer sentence, seven years, because he was viewed as as obviously the person who carried out the stabbing. Carried out the stabbing. However, like there's no debate about the fact that it was, you know, that the two of them were working together in mm. terms of restraining the guard. Um, obviously, because Gavin Quinn didn't have the knife, he got a lesser sentence. And, and Quinn, cl- Gavin Quinn claimed that he had drank a bottle of whiskey and had taken two grams of coke, that he didn't remember the details of it, but he was able to say that he didn't disable uh, the, 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 the guarda Alan Murphy. You know, yes. he doesn't remember what happened, but he was also claiming that he didn't do, he didn't hold him down. So, I mean, I think um, that's what was said to the court. Just to explain, so they were first of all going to be charged with attempted murder, which would carry a life sentence. Or which could carry could a life carry sentence. Could carry a life sentence, yeah. of course, yeah. It's not mandatory, but yeah. it, it could carry up to that. But in the background of all these criminal cases that come before the courts is the Director of Public Prosecutions. And it is the Director of Public Prosecutions that makes the decisions on what charges are brought or not brought. Um, the Gardaí carry out their own investigations and they send what's called a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And the DPP then decides, is there enough evidence here to go forward in trial or whatever? But the two Quins sort of went to the DPP with essentially what is a bit of an American phrase, but a plea bargain. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that, that like any charge, you know, that obviously the attempted murder was was brought there. But, you know, there has to be, uh, I suppose if somebody has tried for something like that and they're, they're found not guilty, they walk free. Um, where a lesser charge, you know, obviously the Quinn, Quinn brothers ultimately pled guilty to a lesser charge. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, the state may judge that mm-hmm. something cannot be proven. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law or there's a risk that it won't be and then somebody m- m- may not face any uh, sanction at all. So that's that's the... the that's the thing behind that's, it. That's the and there's lots of things weighed up as well. I think also just even, look, you know, even the cost of a trial, how long yeah. it'll go on for, etc., etc. All of that kind of comes into the DPP's decision-making. Yeah. Um, and we're not condemning the decision no, in I any mean, way. We're just sort of explaining how an attempted murder charge reduces to assault and how somebody gets away with two and a half years instead of a possible life sentence. Yeah, I mean, you see it, you see it all the time. People are you know, maybe charged with something. You see cases, there was a case recently, somebody charged with murder and that was downgraded ultimately to manslaughter where they would plead guilty and it'd be accepted that, you know, the DPP make a decision on the charge, but the judge then makes a decision on the sentence. Um, You know, there's obviously, there's guidelines for judges as well. Um, They can't, you know, go beyond those those sentencing guidelines, but, you know, the DPP don't necessarily know what the sentence will be. Um, and of course, the sentence was backdated to when Gavin Quinn, in particular, first went into jail. So he had already served two years by the time yeah. he was sentenced. Forty-five days later, he walks out of the prison and puts a photograph up on social media of uh, him being greeted by a, a female associate. Yeah. So I mean, it, he gets a, a, I mean, a hero's welcome as he walks out to the loving arms of his associates. Um, then. There is, I mean, the the the. Where did that go up on social media? That went up on a on a on a, a female associates pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, is is was oh, that a brazen kind of two fingers? Well, I mean, I think it's so. What happened was the story broke, and the GRA, you know, often don't comment on these things, but they did put out, you know, some comments on this. Um, and um, then what happens is, of course, is that the the the, the stories go up. 
you can look through comments yeah. yourselves, but you see there is a, a sort of a backlash from his associates saying he did his time and, oh. you know, all of that sort of stuff. So they're, 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 it's not people that, you know, it's a funny thing where people are not... Uh, maybe ashamed of mm. of that association you know that they're they're you know they're defending him and and at the heart of it it really is this guard murphy who i i just think he's uh taken an amazing attitude to it he says he's not a victim yeah and he wants to go forward and and continue to do his job i mean i think that's amazing he hasn't been intimidated out of his what is his passion to be a guard to serve the community despite this horrendous attack happening on him yeah and i mean it, it is it is admirable as you say there's many people have backed away from that job when when these things happen and that's no judgment on them but you know i think there is um it's it's i suppose it's all a little parable for for policing in 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 modern life isn't it like you know what i mean like how do we treat people that that launch these attacks and are we are we really looking at it in the longer term because there can't be a like we have obviously we talked about Holland but there's even more and this is not to compare the Queen Brothers to this but if you see in places like Mexico and, mm. and other countries there where where the state have really uh, you know where lost control they've lost yeah. control and yeah. as simple as that and to see it almost happen in Holland and that's yeah. from said by the the Dutch officials themselves, where you become at risk of running a, nar a narco state. Yes. And that has been said by the Dutch politicians. And that it has. It's been said a number of times. And it's the first country in Europe, really, where we have seen that the murder of a, a criminal lawyer who was um, who was working with a state witness, the murder of a journalist who uh, was also sort of working with a state witness who was to give evidence against a particular individual. And there, for a period of time, the Prime Minister under secure, under 24-hour security. Yeah. Like, it's scary how quick that can happen and how one individual can tip that balance. And then all of a sudden you have this sort of baying community, I suppose, of gangland criminals who are just more than willing to go out on the attack. And that that's really why I think messages have to be sent that this is just not acceptable. And unfortunately, in the case of Quinn, for all the various reasons we've discussed, that message wasn't sent. No, I don't think so. And I mean, look, it's it's not to say Gavin Quinn is responsible for turning Ireland into a narco state. He clearly isn't personally, but yeah. there there has to be maybe a look at a look at how um, you know that that how if sentencing is not the sole thing that's gonna stop, but you know, there are there are in many other countries uh, particular Differences in sentencing for people who attack the arms of the justice system, you know. Mm. Okay, well. Um, Hope you're not too depressed now. At the no, end of I'm, all I'm, that, no, are you? I'm really cheery now. That's that's really kind of brought me back to remembering your your good old days, doorstepping yeah. people in. I know houses in Sligo. Sligo, and stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, but um, so look, there's a lot going on. There's a lot coming up over the next couple of months. Not only. Um, are we possibly heading to the ploughing championships <laughs> yeah, for a yeah, yeah, live yeah, yeah, show? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. have my own show on the 20th of September in Liberty Hall. Touch your donkey to the ploughing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what do we talk about at the ploughing? We're going to have to talk about rural crime and criminals. We and will. will. What will we talk about? We'll just waffle it'll on. Be we? It'll, yeah, be it'll be interesting. It'll be very, very interesting. Um, that's a live show on the 21st at the ploughing. But also we have some really... Um, 
meaty trials and stuff coming up over the next couple of months and we're going to be really busy. Um, so I suppose, welcome back yourself. Thank you very much, Nicola. Yeah. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.